1: This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, what can I say? Zeke Fox's book, Number Go Up, Inside Crypto's Wild Rise and Staggering Fall, is just a shocking and hilarious and fun read. Uh, I read it uh, pretty quickly in, in, in less than a week, and I thought it was just fascinating. It is a deep. Dive a no holds barred look at crypto and the many, many scams that take place across everything from NFTs to ICOs to hacks to to Bitcoin business models. Um, He is especially uh, unhappy with Tether, which, by the way, of all the scams in the book, Tether so far seems to be holding up. It's really the thing that pulled him into the world of crypto, and it's the one that has outlasted the writing of the book. Lots of other things fell apart, including FTX. I found the book to be really entertaining and and amusing and a little bit horrifying. Parts of it are really um, just terrifying. But Zeke is a, a fascinating guy. He is an award-winning investigative reporter for Businessweek and Bloomberg News. He won the Loeb Award, the Civil Gavel Award. He was a National Magazine Award finalist. He, he's really a, a, an interesting guy with a, a fascinating history. And the story of how he unraveled all of the mayhem in the world of crypto is really um, quite fascinating Starting with a buddy who who made a little money and he just gets sucked into the netherworld of everything from Luna to Terra to Celsius to tether to Nfts and the board Ape Yacht Club. Uh, it really is just a, a, a very entertaining book and I thought this conversation was was absolutely fascinating. With no further ado, my deep dive into crypto with Business Week's Zeke Fox. Normally here, I would say, welcome to Bloomberg, but Zeke Fox, you work at Bloomberg, so welcome to the fifth floor. Let's talk a little bit about your career and and what led you to write this book. A little background, we're recording this in late October, Bitcoin touched $35,000 this week, it settled somewhere around 32000 the FTX trials are getting aw- underway, fun time to be covering crypto.
2: Yes, and I mean the title of the book "Number Go Up" inside crypto's wild rise and staggering fall. Little bit give away my my perspective there. I think this whole thing is over and over whether, done. Never yes. never to rise from the ashes. Forget again. about it. Yeah.
1: So we'll talk more about that. We'll talk about why Number Go Up is a business model and how crypto winter seems to come uh, more and more frequently. But let's start a little bit with your background. Your beat seems to be financial-related crimes. How did you ever find your way to this area of interest?
2: I don't like to say that because my job depends on talking to people and getting me to tell their story. (laughs) So I I prefer to describe it as, well, I write profiles of people who make a lot of money in an interesting way. And (laughs) I was drawn to that because I'm somebody who plays by the rules. You know, I, I went to school. I got pretty good grades, I got a job, I've worked at Bloomberg for more than a decade now. But I really like these characters who are willing to take like crazy risks. Mm-hmm. And they operate in gray areas like loan sharks, pump and dump schemers, debt collectors. Like I have spent my whole career writing about these guys who are, operate on the fringes of, of Wall Street. And I love getting to know these characters and figuring out what makes them tick. Cause there's a lot you can do if you are willing to run the risk that like maybe the Securities and Exchange Commission will sue you or like maybe you'll go to jail for a year, you know, but maybe you're going to make a lot of money first. Seems like a fair
1: approach. Let's talk about how you fell into crypto. It cracked me up. Your buddy Jay made a bunch of money on Dogecoin. He's freaking Nostradamus. Tell us uh, uh, about your conversations with Jay.
2: So I have a group text with a bunch of friends from high school. We call it Dan's Basement because that's where we used to hang out. And Jay is a smart guy. He's a funny guy. We used to write a humor column together back in high school in uh, Cambridge, Massachusetts. And out of the blue, he starts texting us about this thing that he calls Doggy Coin. And he's <laughs> not like,
1: Dogecoin, Doggy Coin. Right.
2: And that's me hilarious. being like the, the know it all you know, financial reporter, I tell him, Jay, it's called Dogecoin and it's dumb. It went because this is 2020. It's the height of the pandemic. We're all stuck at home. We're really bored. Doge this is coin. before
1: Elon starts tweeting about
2: it. Yeah, it's starting to bubble up a bit. I can see you here taking Jay's side in the argument ahead of time. Right. I mean, he's like, "Hey, people are talking about it on Reddit. You know, let's." Uh, I, I can see this going up. It's funny. People, everybody likes doggy coin. Get in early. And I'm thinking to myself, I remember when this went sort of viral a few years earlier. Ar- there would already been a very funny segment on The Daily Show making fun of crypto and mm-hmm. Dogecoin, and I'm like, it's pointless, and he's like, I know it's pointless, I don't care, I just think it's funny, and I'm trying to argue, it's not funny, it won't go up, and this goes on for like weeks and weeks, and it does go up, and he keeps telling us about it, I'm getting kind of jealous, finally, he <laughs> sells out, I think he he may have even called it right and sold before. Elon Musk hosted Saturday Night Live, which that was like a you know buy the rumor, sell sure, the news moment. Sure. And he went to Disney. He's sending selfies with from his proceeds. Disney. Yeah, he made enough on on <laughs> Dogecoin to go to Disney. He texted us, "I am freaking Nostradamus," and I'm a little I'm jealous that he made money and I didn't. But more than that, I also I like being right, and I think of myself as the one who knows about finance. And I've, I'm an expert on pump and dump schemes. Any and sort of
1: scam or, you know, fast talking salesman who is going to leave you holding the bag, right? Yeah. Of course, you're going to be skeptical. In fact, in the book, you describe Bitcoin's first commercial application was Silk Road. How did that work out for everybody?
2: I mean, it was pretty cool. If you were, Not that I did, but if you wanted to buy drugs off the internet, you could right. just, there was this new magic internet money. Just Bitcoin fire so- up your Tor browser and you know, send some of this new, newfangled internet money to order your LSD or whatever.
1: Actually, we're recording this October 2023. It was literally a decade ago, October 2013, when Silk Road uh, got busted, when the founder Ross Albright got busted. And you note know in the book, hey, Bitcoin might have crashed, But a month later, it's up 10x to over $1,000. And that looked very suspicious.
2: Yeah. So Silk Road was actually very important to the early years of Bitcoin. It got it on the map. It got a lot of people buying. But really, what made Bitcoin popular was not so much that it was useful for anything, it was number go up it was the price going up and people seeing headlines about somebody making money on bitcoin everybody had a friend like jay who was telling them hey i made some money on crypto maybe you should too and it became hard to resist and it's interesting that uh, in these early years there wasn't much liquidity in bitcoin and it was easy for people to manipulate the prices um so since then it's come out that some of the price changes that got people's attention in these early years may have been from manipulation.
1: A substantial portion of the volume were just various interested companies trading coins back and forth with each other.
2: Yeah, I mean, there's a coin called Litecoin, which is like a Bitcoin knockoff. And it's since come out that a lot of the early run-up in Litecoin that got people interested in Litecoin was the result of just uh, manipulation. But in those early years, even more than today, like anything went, the Securities and Exchange Commission was not following Bitcoin trading closely. At
1: all. And you mentioned number go up is the title of the book. That's essentially the business model of Bitcoin. It it will go up because it has gone up. Explain.
2: So I had resisted looking into crypto, but I took on the assignment after this argument with Jay. And one of the first places I went was Miami for Bitcoin 2021. Mm-hmm. It was one of the first big conferences of pretty much any kind since the COVID restrictions lifted. It was like 10,000 people descended on this warehouse in the Wynwood district. And I'll go in kind of skeptical But also Bitcoin people and crypto people are great at PR Mm -hmm. and they spread this narrative that there's like this wave of institutional adoption that's just around the corner. I think at any time in like the last 10 years, there's always been the sort of sense that, oh, you've seen a headline about like BlackRock or JP Morgan. and Fidelity. Yeah, the big guys are getting in on it. So I go to this conference thinking, all right, I'm skeptical of crypto, but I'm also sort of expecting to see regular Wall Street guys there talking about financial technology in ways that I can understand. Instead, on stage, I see like the craziest guys that I've ever heard. Um, people are just like scream. At that time, they were down on Elon Musk. Right. People are screaming about... Uh, F-Elon! Terrible- yeah, F-Elon! Max
1: Kaiser from Russian television, or I don't know where he is today, but... Um- yeah,
2: and one guy's on stage, and he's talking about Bitcoin, and he says the most important innovation in bitcoin is number go up technology and he's like (laughs) number go up technology is a powerful piece of technology it means when the price goes up more people will hear about it and they'll want to buy it and that'll make the price go up some more and then more people hear about it and then they'll buy it and it'll go up even higher and pretty soon we'll
1: all be rich so number go up technology sounds a lot like the greater fool theory of of speculation.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's it's like the logic of a pyramid scheme, but for a couple of years there, it seemed to work. And the crypto people like to say, wag me, W-A-G-M-I, we're, we're all going to make, make it. Yep. And the idea was just buy, hold it, buy some more. It's going to go up. As long as we don't lose the faith and we keep promoting it to our friends, we're all going to be rich.
1: The, the problem with that is at a certain point, you run out of people to come in and... Buy it. This this is true with every pump and up scheme, every pyramid scheme, and it it comes out in some of the court documents later that in in some of the corporate Slack accounts, one one of the people say they should be the director of Ponzi economics. Tell us what is Ponzi nomics.
2: This is uh slightly related to number go up technology. Mm-hmm. It's a, it's about on that level. And some of these new coins that were being started at that time would explicitly say that they were adopting Ponzi-ish structures. And we're talking about like DeFi apps. So these were like new crypto apps. And what it would boil down to is that if you started doing whatever this thing was, they would pay you in a new coin. And you might think, well, why do I want Ritholtz coin? And they'd say, well, you need Ritholtz coin to use the Ritholtz app. And it'd be like, well, why do I wanna use the Ritholtz app? And it's like, well, that's how you all earn more Ritholtz coin. It there, sounds circular. Yes, it was very circular, but it seemed like every couple of weeks, somebody was starting one of these things and it was really taking off. And there, there was one that um, was, got very popular called Step In. And it's like a health app on your phone. Uh-huh. And to use the app, you have to buy a virtual shoe. Uh-huh. For some reason only one shoe. I you don't, don't know need why. A pair that, of shoes. Yeah, only one. You just buy one shoe, Should've but it's called cost, hopping. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, if you bought the shoe and it cost like 1000 bucks equivalent, then you could earn green satoshi tokens. Uh-huh. So these it once you'd spent your 1000 bucks on the shoe, you'd better keep walking every day or you're just throwing away your chance to earn these valuable green satoshi tokens. So it sounds like almost a legitimate business plan.
1: We're going to give you a financial incentive to exercise, and it'll all take place in crypto on the blockchain. And so not only are you going to get healthy, you're also going to get rich. What could go wrong?
2: Right. I mean, honestly, a lot of these pitches, if you just heard them for a couple of minutes, they sounded pretty good. Not bad. Yeah. But the reality was, was people were, there were like teams of bots playing step in. And it it just boiled down to a pyramid. And they're trying to bring... Everyone who did Step-In was dependent on new people wanting to do Step-In and wanting to buy these shoes because otherwise there was no use for these green Satoshi tokens. And inevitably, every other game like this, the price crashed and shoe prices are way down. Yeah.
1: By the way, I found the book to be infuriating and hilarious, very informative, very fun, but also serious. Lots of really serious things were in it and despite that, some of the pros just really was laugh out loud. What what I want to do is read a couple of quotes to you and, and get your reaction as to what's going on here and, and just, just give us a little color, starting with, quote, I couldn't believe that everyday people sent millions of perfectly good U.S. dollars to the Inspector Gadget Creator's Bahamian Bank in exchange for digital tokens conjured by the Mighty Ducks guy and run by executives who were targets of a U.S. criminal investigation.
2: Explain. We're talking about Tether. There's a lot to unpack there. And it was the first crypto company that I really set out to investigate. In the like regular financial world, if you're investigating hedge fund a fintech company basically a lot of times even the investigation that like brings down the company the reporter just points out one red flag like they'll be like hey enron maybe what's with this off balance sheet stuff maybe it's a bit fishy (laughs) and like that's what brings down enron right now tether this is a company that was like the central bank of crypto and when I started looking into it. It's it's a stable coin. So they say that every Tether token is worth $1 and there's a dollar in reserve somewhere. Yeah, they're keeping a dollar in the bank for you. You can always trade your token in for a real dollar. So when I started looking into it, they had 50 billion Tether tokens. It gotten huge, and that meant they were supposed to have 50 billion dollars in the bank somewhere. How
1: how hard is it to show those audited returns? It's not even return on investment. Here's our $50 billion.
2: Right. So they, they weren't saying where. Red flag number one. Red flag number two. One of the coin's inventors was Brock Pierce, who is a child actor from The Mighty Ducks. Um,
1: Emilio Estevez's younger self.
2: Yes. And he, he's in the flashback. He misses this crucial penalty shot that haunts coach Gordon Bombay later in life. This guy had had this crazy career in the dot-com bubble in World of Warcraft item trading, and then he'd thought up this, uh, this Tether coin. Now, he'd passed on ownership to a new team, and I found that the de facto boss of Tether was a former plastic surgeon from Milan who had this crazy <laughs> uh, online diary where he posted about his admiration, it seemed, for Bernie Madoff. Uh, uh, and
1: how does Inspector Gadget get into this?
2: Oh, yeah. We need to bring in all my favorite media. So I'm looking for this $50 billion. That's like what gets me into crypto. I'm like, I'm the guy who's going to see if they have this 50000000000 billion. I'm going to track it down. And when I go look, the only bank that I can find that will say we have any of this money is Deltec Bank in the Bahamas. And its chairman is Jean Chalapin. And he's a French guy who got rich by creating Inspector Gadget. Like, really? Like the
1: cartoon that uh, kids the grew original. up
2: watching? Yes. And he's not just, like, the finance guy behind it. like He's the creator. I, like, I don't think he drew the cartoons, but, like, he came up with the idea. He was on the team. This is what made him rich. is it, He created Inspector Gadget and then this whole <laughs> cartoon company around it. And he's, honestly, he's like a character from James Bond movie. He bought a castle with the Inspector Gadget money. Right. And he also bought a mansion in the Bahamas, a pink colonial mansion on the beach that you can actually see in a James Bond movie. In the movie, it's the villain's house. Um. He he flew his own jet. He piloted it. Very charming guy. And so he, he says, <laughs> uh, I am holding some of Tether's money. And I say, okay, I'll see you tomorrow in the Bahamas. Um. So I fly down there. We get to his office. And when I walk in... He pulls this book off the shelf. I think it's called Misplaced Trust. And it's about, (laughs) like, financial schemes. And he starts, like, sort of flipping through it and says, uh, the strange things people do for money. And I'm just like, John, are you you playing a character in this, uh, in, like, a new episode of Inspector Gadget right now? Like, what is going on? It was all foreshadowing. Oh, yeah. But the weird thing about Tether was that there are all these red flags. And we didn't even mention they'd been sued for fraud by the New York Attorney General, who had shown that they'd lied about the reserves in the past, that even John would say, I didn't know where all the money was. I could only account for a portion of it. So there are all these red flags, enough that in the traditional finance world, investors would be scared off. But in the crypto world, people kept trusting Tether, and the coins still traded for a dollar. And like I wrote there, people just kept sending in their real money to get these tokens. And every day, it's the most traded crypto coin. (laughs) Let's go to the next quote that cracked me up. You actually reference a tweet, quote,
1: imagine if keeping your car idling 24-7 produced solved Sudoku's, you could trade for heroin. Explain.
2: Oh, love this tweet. It's a great explanation of Bitcoin, which in the Bitcoin mining process.
1: Very power hungry.
2: Yes. I mean, by some estimates, Bitcoin mining uses more energy than the whole country of Argentina. And it's just like warehouses of these computers running around the clock and i was surprised to learn that there's not really they're not really doing anything that's crucial to the bitcoin network they're just playing sort of this guessing game that makes it difficult for anyone to hack bitcoin and steal all the bitcoins but it just uses this insane amount of energy
1: huh here's one of my favorites quote all my apes gone tell us a little bit about your experience purchasing a mutant ape nft
2: I got a lot of criticism from crypto guys as I was researching this book, and they would say, "How are you writing about crypto if you don't have any crypto?" And I would tell them, "Well, listen. First of all, as a reporter, I'm not supposed to invest in anything."
1: I was told to ask you, "How much money have you made shorting Bitcoin?" And the answer is, "Yeah, nothing. You know, you're, not, no, allo- you're yeah. not allowed to be no long or short that, right?" Yeah,
2: and the, Bit- the crypto people would say, "Actually." Even that policy introduces some bias because you're invested in standard stock market funds and so you're sort of against crypto and wh- how you don't know you don't know about this, you got to try it out. And so eventually they kind of got to me and I was like, you know what? I tried out step in. I got a shoe. Um, <laughs> it was a thousand <laughs> dollars it had it was in the middle of collapse by the time I bought a shoe, but that that didn't do much for me. So your poor uh, wife so you
1: spend a, a couple hundred bucks on a shoe. You spend $20,000 on a mutant ape that fortunately you sold for almost all your money back.
2: Yeah. I decided to try it out and I was like, I'm going straight for the top. I want to join the Bored Ape Yacht Club. Right. That's the crypto thing that the celebrities are doing.
1: But those are hundreds of thousands of dollars.
2: Yeah. This is like a cartoon of a monkey. It's a very ugly cartoon. <laughs> um, they were going for like 500 grand Right, and they were having a party in New York called Ape Fest. You had to have one to go. And I found out you could still get in if you got a mutant ape, which is still—it's like a the ugly cousin of the bored ape, and a much
1: more reasonable twenty thousand dollars.
2: Yes. So when I asked my wife, and she very <laughs> nicely said yes, they were actually going for forty when I asked her. Right. And
1: good news, honey, it's collapsing. It'll only cost us twenty. <laughs>
2: yeah. I, I was happy that it had collapsed, but I was also like, wait. So if it went from forty to twenty in like two weeks. Um, is is it going to go to 10 and i was like please do not go to 10. but even more than it going to 10 my fear was this all my apes gone thing because (laughs) it actually i learned a lot from buying the board ape because if a lot of people who even if you are sort of into crypto maybe you have some bitcoin you have some ethereum you probably just do it on coinbase or Robinhood or whatever you're not actually like using the blockchain right like
1: but to get get the nfts you have to go through the blockchain. And it's a horrific, arduous process.
2: Yes, I mean, I'd heard it would be bad, you know, my expectations were low. But then I went to go do it. And I was like, Oh, my God, like, no one normal will do this. I'll get like, just it boils down to your money lives, like, you know, where you put the URL in your web browser, Uh you might type in Google, and then maybe you have like a little red stop sign if you have ad block. Now, Maybe next to it, how would you like to add a picture of a fox head? And that's where your money's going to be. Chrome,
1: on a Chrome extension. Yes. Like. And
2: like before you install it, they make you watch this video. And it says, welcome to the wonderful world of crypto. Now, please engrave your 12 word <laughs> password on a piece of metal and bury it in your backyard. And which I did not do. But I just the process of getting my $20,000 into this fox head so that I could waste it on this mutant ape was so horrible that I was just like, this is a huge obstacle to crypto ever taking off. No right. one normal is going to do this unless they think they're going to get rich. And, um, and tell us, who said,
1: all my apes gone?
2: So once you got the apes, you got to watch out because you're going to get hacked. They might get stolen. And there was a art dealer who actually got hacked and $2 million of NFTs was stolen from him. Right. And he tweeted, mid-hack, all my apes gone. The saddest tweet in all of in all of crypto. <laughs> the saddest tweet in all of crypto.
0: The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum, powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights, and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at Qatar Economic Forum.com.
1: So, so let's talk a little bit about Axie Infinity, it is a, a massive multiplayer online game. And, um,. <laughs> This quote is just bonkers. Crypto bros and Silicon Valley VCs gave Filipinos false hope by promoting an unstable bubble based on a Pokemon knockoff as the, quote, future of work, unquote. Making matters worse, North Korean hackers broke into the crypto exchange affiliated with the game Made off with $600 million worth of stablecoins and ether, the heist helped Kim Jong-un pay for test launches of ballistic missiles. Instead of providing a new way for poor people to earn cash, Axie Infinity funneled their savings to a dictator's weapons program. I mean, that is just a beautiful paragraph. I'm, so first off, I love the pros, but second, what a horrible story.
2: Yes, and like- I'm not making that up. Like the U.S. government has said, North Korea's nuclear program is partly funded from hacking this Pokemon knockoff game. And this was game Axie. The crypto guys, when it was going well, they loved to talk about it. This was their number one example of Web 3. You had to buy a team of monsters. It was a game you played on your phone. Mm-hmm. You had to buy the monsters before you could play. And then you, when you battled, you earned smooth love potions and it had the same <laughs> circular logic where you needed the potions to get more monsters why do you want monsters well to get the potions why do you want the potions to get monsters and you know and it, but it was going great for a while and it more than a million people in the philippines started playing i went there to check it out i mean even my driver had taken out a loan for something like a thousand bucks to buy a team of monsters and it had lost it. For these people who took out loans to get in on it, it had been a real setback in their life. You know, this was no joke to them. It's not like just their pocket money.
1: S- serious, serious damage. Here's could be my favorite Sam Bankman Freed quote. Quote, it's like the narrative would be sexier if it was like, holy sh- this is the world's biggest Ponzi scheme, right?
2: <laughs> yeah, so... I spent a lot of time with Sam Bankman-Fried in reporting this book because it was clear he was a major player in crypto. And it was actually very fun when I went to go write the book, FTX had collapsed. And some of his quotes like that one took on some new meaning. And I'm like, was this guy just toying with me while he was giving this interview? That's hilarious. And then on the FTX
1: bankruptcy. This could be my favorite quote in the whole book. The shocking reversal was the biggest news crypto had ever seen. It was as if Satoshi Nakamoto's identity was finally revealed. And it was Janet Yellen, the central banker hated by Bitcoiners. That's just a hilarious sentence. I mean, it's so great. Everybody thought FTX was the most legitimate entity in all crypto. Turns out not so much.
2: Yeah. And I will admit, I also thought, I was skeptical of crypto, but I thought, I thought, hey, FTX is a casino for cryptocurrencies. They're encouraging people to gamble there. People will probably lose their money. I did not suspect that Sam Bankman-Fried was stealing all the money out of the back of the casino.
1: So, so let's talk about some of the things that happened after FTX collapsed. Here's a quote. The past two years have felt like this perpetual gaslighting of anyone who expresses caution, now it's all unraveling very quickly. That's from Twitter, someone called Bitfinext. Tell us a little bit about him and and what his role was.
2: So Bitfinext has been tweeting about his skepticism of crypto and especially Tether for years and years now. A long, like seven, eight years Uh, since it was formed. Yeah. Dozens of times a day. And he seemed to have some pretty like sometimes he'd tweet photos or things that seemed like he was an insider and I arranged to meet him and what I realized when I met him was, oh no, this is like a dude who lives in his mom's basement. <laughs> <laughs> but
1: but it turns out to be pretty insightful as to what's going on.
2: You know, his like me, we both started out looking at Tether and it's turned out that Tether has held up pretty well. Um has actually only grown since I started investigating it. It's it, up to it, eighty four billion it, now. It's
1: it really is crazy. Let let me run through a few a few more quotes that just crack me up. First, did Peter Thiel really call Warren Buffett a sociopathic grandpa for for doubting Bitcoin?
2: Yes, that was at Bitcoin twenty twenty two in Miami. We'd he played the like Max Kaiser role of the guy who yelled the craziest stuff on stage. Right,
1: but but at the same time. Uh, you revealed that he was secretly dumping all his crypto or yeah. not so secretly because you could track fund, all this uh, on the blockchain.
2: Yeah, his his fund had had sold crypto and it only came out after that speech.
1: Right, a little misleading. The, there were a couple of other people that you referenced that I, I two in particular I just have to ask about. First, Michael Saylor at MicroStrategy. My memory of MicroStrategy when I was on a trading desk was somebody had released what was a false, a fake press release when MicroStrategy was like, I don't know, buck 50, some crazy price. And it plummets on this news, it's halted, and then the company comes out and says, this isn't a real news release. Somebody who's a former employee, and it reopens and it climbs like two thirds of the way back. But a crazy, crazy history. Michael Saylor, recently CEO of the company, becomes a Bitcoin maximalist and says, quote, I just hope I don't get up one day and have to look at myself in the mirror and say, you had $15 billion and you blew it all. There's the guy who flushed $15 billion down the toilet. Soon after, he loses $13.5 billion. What was that about?
2: Saylor said that to the New Yorker Uh in an amazing profile about his dot-com riches. He's the biggest loser of the dot-com bubble, but MicroStrategy plugs along. Uh-huh. And They had more... some real technology, some software, right. right? It was like a real company that was making a decent amount of money. And in recent years, he's changed the company to be all about Bitcoin. He sunk all the profits into Bitcoin. He's levered up and borrowed money and bought Bitcoin. So now if you want to invest in MicroStrategy stock, it's just a bet on Bitcoin. And he's also become like the craziest Bitcoin maximalist out there who these are the guys who are like the the priests of the bitcoin church and he says things like bitcoin is a flock of cyber hornets stinging the financial system to death honestly the real quote is crazier than that but it's people like him that are really they actually are key to bringing in new people into this bitcoin world and it's actually why i has i would hesitate to bet against bitcoin because it's become this cult, and the people who love it just love it so, so, so much. Right. It
1: definitely has cult-like aspects. You also take a swing at the Mooch, at Anthony Scaramucci. Scaramucci, 58, looking tanned and Botox smooth, wearing a well-fitted suit, his pompadour, freshly dyed jet black. Now, I know the Mooch. He's a good guy, good enough guy. Botox and, and
2: hair dye? Is, is that true? So the book was thoroughly fact-checked, and... <laughs> Not only did the Mooch confirm that, I believe that that was, if I remember correctly, he announced this at this event. Oh, he did? Yes. He was like, check out my hair. I got a new... I know he uh, likes to
1: say, this is a Brioni shoot. These are Ferragamos
2: on my feet. Like, he he definitely drops
1: brand names on a regular.
2: We were at Crypto Bahamas, the big conference to celebrate the success of Sam Bankman fried (laughs) He had just made this partnership with FTX. And the Mooch loves a press conference. Sure. So he called. There were a lot of reporters there at the conference. And he had this sort of press conference at the beginning. But it seemed like, I mean, the only thing he wanted to talk is he just kept talking about how good (laughs) he looked and how bad Sam Bankman-Fried looked. That was like the point of the press conference.
1: I forgot where I read that before the book. But all he talked about is that maybe that's where the Brioni suit came up.
2: Yeah. I mean, that was sort of Sam Bankman's Fried thing. It was his thing is I don't dress up for anybody. Congress, he would, uh, he put on a suit, although he didn't tie his shoes famously, but at this conference, the mooch, I mean, he looked great. Bankman freed was wearing, you know, khaki shorts and a t-shirt. His hair all messed up. Even when he was on stage with Bill Clinton, Tony Blair. Tom Brady. Unbelievable.
1: Uh, By the way, there's a famous photo. You have it in the book of Sam Bankman-Fried and Giselle. And you look at them, you go, these aren't representatives of the same species. These are two completely different life forms.
2: I I love that photo because it must have been taken backstage before they went out to speak at this conference. And Sam just looks like a... Deer in the headlights, like the flash has caught him off guard. And Giselle, like, you're never going to catch her off guard. She looks great in all situations. She's a professional. Yeah. She's absolutely a professional. But they they posed for an ad campaign together that ran in like classy magazines like The New Yorker. He didn't look much better in those ads either, (laughs) right? It's the same sort of disheveled. I I mean, I guess
1: that was part of the whole MIT genius rap.
2: I will say this, it kind of worked on me. It was like, I'm authentic. I don't care. I'm being myself. I'm not going to pretend. Right. He didn't come off like this slick salesman. He was like, I'm just the guy who, you know, spends all my time thinking about how to make money trading crypto. I went down to to shadow him at his office when things were going great. And I was just like, I'm not leaving till he falls asleep on that beanbag. I want to <laughs> see him nap on the beanbag. And he did. And he, he slept there for couple hours and he at one point he woke up a little bit opened a package of nutter butters ate them and kind of made a mess on the feedback <laughs> and then went back to sleep Because I had like one last question for him and I was like oh, I'm not gonna disturb his nap so he got those nutter butters I was like now's my chance oh nope, back to sleep
1: <laughs> by the way I see where the humor in the book comes from it's basically how you see the world it's really very funny you start with the tether website and you go through the various disclosures including the list of risks. The company could go bankrupt. Bank holdings could lose money. The government could confiscate its assets. And then you notice what seems like a risk disclosure red flag, or we could abscond with the reserve funds. What is the thinking there? Hey, if we ever get prosecuted for stealing money, we could always say, oh no, that was a risk we disclosed up front.
2: I mean, look at Sam Begman-Fried. He's trying to use the terms of service of FTX as a defense now, and basically trying to argue that they allowed him to lend all the customer money to his hedge fund. So, you know, you, know, you never know. Maybe they, it could come in handy one day.
1: So early on, you actually ask SBF about Tether. FTX has wired lots of money through three different jurisdictions and intermediary banks to move U.S. dollars to Tether, what was FTX's relationship to the stablecoin?
2: I met SBF because I wanted to ask him about Tether. They were one of the biggest users of Tether. Something like thirty-five billion of Tether passed through wow. them. Now, what I've learned more recently is that a lot of that came because there was actually in the during the crypto boom, there was demand. For, there was so much demand for Tether. Then on exchanges like FTX, it often traded slightly above a dollar.
1: That's crazy. And so
2: Alameda, his hedge fund, could buy tethers. They had a relationship with Tether, the company. They could buy tethers for a dollar, and then go sell them for a little bit more the profits are very small but alameda's cost of capital was very low since they were borrowing all the customer money right <laughs> yeah, So so a
1: zero cost of capital one percent a day is real money it adds up
2: yeah even if it was like a tenth of a percent they could do it so i think that accounts for why they were using so much tether he did not disclose that at the time if you think of all the crypto exchanges like different casinos tether is basically like the cashier and it's like all in the early years of crypto these casinos had trouble receiving dollars like banks did not want to open bank accounts for crypto companies so instead the crypto companies would say hey customers go to tether send them some real money get some Tether tokens, then you can bring them over here and gamble with them.
1: So what was supposed to be disintermediation became additional media. You had another middleman in the way.
2: Right. Crypto, it's always sold as, as trustless. And in reality, it turns out you keep having to trust these people who prove themselves to be totally untrustworthy.
1: <laughs> so, so tell us a little bit about the leadership of Tether. Who was the founder and who was the CEO?
2: One of the co-founders was this the Mighty Ducks guy Brock Pierce, mm-hmm. and I had a lot of fun meeting him on his mega yacht off the coast of the Bahamas. He sent a speedboat to pick me up, so you know I don't know how often that's going to happen in my journalistic career. But um, and the CEO was this guy Jean Louis Vandervelde, uh-huh. and we also met in the Bahamas. The meeting was brokered by. Jean Chalapin, the Inspector Gadget guy. So I'd gone to the Bahamas hoping that I would meet one of these Tether guys. And I didn't see any of them there. Even though it was a big crypto conference, I thought they'd come. But then finally, Chalapin is like, get over here. JL is here, Vanderveld's here. And I see this uh, tall Dutch guy with silver hair, kind of a funny scar on his nose. And Jean introduces me and he's like, Zeke, if you screw this up, I'll kill you. Um, really with a smile. Like, he's not killing me, but a uh, good line. I appreciated it. Right. So this guy, JL, he's the CEO of one of the biggest companies in crypto. Most people in crypto love to promote themselves. The skeptics, like this guy Bitfinext, would say that there was so little out there about JL. They were like, we don't even think he's a real person. <laughs> so I go to shake JL VanderVelde, the CEO of Tether's Hand, and I'm like, nice to meet. And then he says, the man who doesn't exist. And I'm like, wow, I just love these guys. Th- um, these guys,
1: they're full Bond villains. They're playing right into the
2: characters. Yeah. Hilarious. And we had, uh, we had a, a lot, we spent hours talking in the casino, me and jail, and had a conversation, another a lot conversation that was very funny in hindsight. I was telling him, I was like, listen, man, I just spent a couple of days at Sam Bankman frieds office. That guy doesn't have anything to hide. He just let me see, walk around the whole office and see everything. <laughs> Nothing come, to hide. Yeah. How come you're being so secret? <laughs> and then he he wasn't like, uh, he totally bought into it. And he was like, well, it's easy for Sam Bankman-Fried. You know, he started his company more recently. You know, Tether, People, we a had A little bit of a
1: sketchy past.
2: Yeah. I mean, he's basically like, there's stuff in our past that we can't reveal.
1: For the record, as we're recording this, Tether's trading at- Still the it's coins. a dollar. It's a dollar. and And here, you reference this in the book, but their business model now- with fed funds over 5%, you could get riskless treasuries just about 5%. Their business model is collect 85 billion dollars, put it in riskless treasuries. Hey, you're you're going to get a billion dollars a quarter for doing almost nothing. That's not a bad business right.
2: model. So, when I started looking into Tether, interest rates were zero. And so Tether was sitting on this huge pile of money but and they had incentive to put it at risk right. cuz they needed to earn interest something right so that was another reason to be suspicious of them i found evidence they'd invested in chinese commercial paper they'd been making loans to other crypto companies it seemed like not riskless but now yeah you just put it in treasuries earn 5% they're one of if you believe their numbers they're one of the most profitable companies in the world it's a shoestring operation.
1: Uh, assuming they have all eighty-four billion dollars or eighty-five billion dollars accounted for, free money to them. Now yeah. that you're getting a yield, they really don't have to do anything other than not get hacked.
2: Yes, I mean, which to be fair, they have they were the victims of one of the biggest hacks ever. Right. So I don't know if they're that trustworthy on that front. Um, but yeah, even if let's say just hypothetically. Let's say they had been a billion dollars in the hole. They could easily earn their way out of it now. The interest rates are higher. Right, very easily.
1: Let's talk about some of the other players in both crypto and and stablecoins. Binance founder Changpeng Zhao, better known as CZ. Is he now the richest man in crypto?
2: He's got to be. It's down to him and Justin Sun from the Tron blockchain, Uh both of whom show a notable reluctance to enter U.S. soil. Gee, wonder why. Yeah. um, Sun's been sued by the SEC and Binance has a a number of cases. These guys do still have a ton of money. And when I I went down to the Bahamas after FTX failed, and I was with Sam Bankman Freed when he, just before he got arrested, he was still thinking, how "How do I I, get myself out Yeah, I got to bail myself out. I need to find someone to give me five, ten billion dollars so I can get FTX going again.
1: Pocket change, walking yeah. around cash.
2: But so, it, but it was interesting to me. Was I was like, so who's got five, ten billion dollars? He'd already tried CZ. That didn't work.
1: And it, from the book, it's pretty clear CZ is the one who stuck the knife in.
2: Oh yeah, you can't really blame CZ because I mean, fraud is a fraud. You know, if he he, but he's the one who made a tweet that got people start starting to pull their money out of FTX which revealed the hole at the center of the exchange. Right. Um, but the other people, bankman Freed said, had $5, $10 billion were Tether. They said, no, we're not bailing you out. And this guy, uh, Justin's son, who has this coin, Tron, and is like a crazy character in himself, missing chapter from the book.
0: The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights, and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at Qatar Economic com. Let's,
1: let's talk about Celsius and, and is it Alex Mashinsky? Another stable coin, right?
2: He had a kind of, Celsius was like a crypto bank. And he was saying, send me your stable coins and I'll pay you interest on them. We met at Bitcoin 2021, my first crypto conference. Mm -hmm. And I was there, I wanted to gather info on Tether. Celsius had done business with Tether. So I set up a meeting with this guy, Mashinsky. He was a big hustler. He he was at every conference. He was the one giving all the speeches. He always wore this t-shirt that said, banks are not your friends. We sit down. He told me his. I asked. I'm polite, so before I get to like the the investigative questions, I'm like, "So, what's your company do?" And he's like, "Well, it's, it's sort of like a bank. Uh, give us your coins. We'll pay you up to 18% interest. Um, but if you want a loan, we'll give that to you for free. Like we don't charge interest or a very low rate."
1: Uh, of all the frauds in the world of crypto, when you detail many of them, when interest rates are zero and they're going to pay you 18% on your coins. It sounds like we're going to keep 82% of your coins and the 18% is (laughs) is a scam. Uh, It it just seems like how can you pay when the 10-year is yielding 1.5%, how could you legitimately pay uh, 18% other than number go up? Is is that
2: all it is? Maybe he bought a lot of those shoes and he had a whole army of people walking in circles. But uh, he he told me... um, he told me at the out, I, I had the same reaction. Even when things were going great, this seemed very fishy. And I was shocked when he told me he had $20 billion. But he told me the banks are the scammers. They're taking your deposits and they're earning huge profits and they're lying to you and they're saying they can't pay you any interest. They're, they're, by the way, they don't lie to you.
1: They release their profits every quarter. Hey, yeah. here's how much money we've made on your. Dep- it's yes. all public, it's not like it's hidden.
2: Yes. And I. Hated to find myself. I was spent. A, I was over at Mashinsky's apartment on the Upper East Side, and I found myself like defending uh, Wall Street, being like, "Listen, the, J.P. Morgan is very safe. Even in the financial crisis, people didn't lose their deposits." Right. But he's like, "Somebody's lying. Either J.P. Morgan is lying or Celsius is lying." And even in the moment, I was like, "This is a great line. It's take, definitely Alex that's lying." I'm going to take Jamie Dimon over yeah, and, over
1: Alex Mashinsky. And, Just. Just uh, just because I'm uh, 51.49, I'm leaning diamonds
2: way. Celsius did collapse in the end, and actually a month or two ago, Mashinsky got arrested and charged with fraud. Un- unbelievable. So so one of the, my favorite stories from
1: this era was the Terra Luna stablecoin situation, and a, a pretty well-regarded hedge fund manager, Mike Novogratz, he got a howling wolf Luna tattoo on his upper arm. T- tell
2: us a little bit about. Terra and Luda and, and Novogratz. So Novogratz, back a few years ago, he gave an interview to our colleague, Eric Schatzker, uh-huh. where he said something that I thought was very honest and that I I really liked this quote. And he said, listen, this crypto thing is the biggest bubble of our lifetime. There's great fortunes to be made on the way up. And like, I'm going to get mine. And and he uh, did. For yeah. the
1: most part, To let's give him credit. He, he bought when things were low. He saw—I'm not going to suggest he top-ticked it, but he definitely cashed a decent amount out, right, before the most recent collapse.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think his profits overall are are high. He was definitely wrong, though, on this Terra Luna one. Well, the whole and, tattoo
1: thing was just—
2: uh, Yeah. You know, so, talk
1: about talk about the wrong thing to permanently
2: etch on your body. Oh, my God. So— it was run by this guy, this South Korean guy named Do Kwan, who was very mean on Twitter. He'd always just be insulting people if you ever questioned Tether. But the pitch was a lot like Celsius. You could earn 18%. I think it actually was also 18 or 19%. That seems to be the magic number. Yeah, that you could earn if you deposited your Terra coins into the Anchor protocol. Uh-huh. And now, it unlike Tether, which is backed by real dollars in the bank, or so they say, the Terra coins were backed by Luna coins and you could always trade your terra coins for one dollar worth of luna coins now you might ask why do i want any luna coins and the answer is they're, they're don't ask by, about that they're back like terra coins <laughs> no the luna coins were there actually there was no story for why you should buy the luna coins um and a lot of people in crypto even when this was going on were like zeke you might want to take a look at this uh terra luna one <laughs> Uh, so, so,
1: even the crypto bros were skeptical of this.
2: Yes, but Novogratz was a big investor in it and he got the Luna logo tattooed on his shoulder. And I don't want to like totally let him off the hook because what he said in his quote and also by like tweeting about this, tweeting his tattoo. He was promoting it. He's promoting it and he's bringing in people who, because the way to really make money on crypto is to get in early, right? Great, find and, greater fools to sell it to. Yeah. And, a lot of these insiders, I'm not saying him with Luna, I don't remember the details, but they get special deals and they get the tokens at like for a penny. It can rise and fall and they're still sitting pretty. And so these guys, by promoting these bubbles, are bringing in new people who are going to lose real money.
1: Speaking of losing real money, let's talk about the initial coin offerings. I was I always thought they were sketchy. I was shocked to read in the book, 80% of ICOs are fraudulent?
2: Explain. Yeah, so this was the last bubble. It's important with crypto; you need to keep coming up with like a new twist on the story. So, is
1: that where NFTs come from and ICOs come from?
2: Uh, yeah, I, I would say that. I mean, people in this in the new in the most recent bubble, people talked about uh, coins, right? And even in sort of like a loving way, they'd be like, "Oh, I'm I'm buying the latest like." It's going to the moon. And, and that it,
1: literally, by the way, was the cover of a Business Week edition, rhymes with Bitcoin.
2: Oh, yeah. Even people who like NFTs will tell you that they're basically <laughs> coins with pictures on them. And so ICOs are like the previous iteration of this technology. Back in 2017, you could just say, Hey, I'm gonna put dentistry on the blockchain. I got DentaCoin. That's like a real one. Actually, I think one of the more legit ones. Um, but they got like a is million. That, bucks. How is yeah. that
1: more legit than others?
2: Like, I think like there was some real effort to like get dentists to update their tooth databases or something. So,
1: so the most legit thing I read had to do with Ethereum and smart contracts, and you can imagine a use case where if Taylor Swift were to put her tickets up for sale, she could build into it, hey, no nobody can can go out and and sell these these for 50 times what fans uh want to pay. If you resell them, I get half of the proceeds and that that would keep the scalper to a minimum. Like that is a use case that makes sense. None of these other things seem to have a real use case.
2: Yeah, and even I mean even that use case, I was frankly surprised this continually surprised to the downside in this crypto world with ape fest you would think that this is like the premier nft event there's all this talk about how nfts will be good the blockchain will be good for ticketing it turns out they do not use the nfts for ticketing right there's this whole other like complicated system set up to figure out how you get in there and i think a lot of this stuff sounds good in theory but wait till my mom buys her Taylor Swift tickets for $2,000. She tries to send it to the Foxhead, and then she, she can't remember where she buried the password in her backyard. (laughs) Like nobody's going to like that. People like customer service. They like, you know, to use their credit card, they get a refund if they get scammed, you know? So I'm not even sure that the idea that, that there really is demand to have concert tickets be controlled in some decentralized database. You know, I think there's a reason why for all that we complain about Ticketmaster, there's a reason why like a central authority has grown to dominate this market.
1: And and you use the example that Bitcoin has been around for as long as it took us to go from the first website to the iPhone longer than Airbnb and Uber have been around. And those have become real businesses. What is the problem that Bitcoin is trying to solve?
2: I don't deny if we had a Bitcoin, if we had Michael Saylor here, he could probably talk quite convincingly about how great Bitcoin is in theory. And I would just say, look at what's happened in practice. Nobody's using it for anything, even in El Salvador, where it was really promoted as this great success story where we see Bitcoin in the real world. Nobody likes it. Nobody's using it. And if this crypto stuff was so great, it would sell itself. You wouldn't need to be pushing it on people. The technologies that, that people like just spread virally.
1: Really really amusing. I want to talk about some of the damage from crypto. But before we get to that, you've been going to the Sam Bankman Freed trial uh, about uh, FTX's collapse. It seems from this book, there's a lot of blame to people like Carolyn Ellison, who ran Alameda Research, Gary Wang, who was their technologist and and wrote all the code, and, and Nishad Singh. Is it just that they played the prisoner's dilemma better than Sam Bankman Freed? Like, everybody was so quick to throw him under the bus. Looks like there's a lot of culpability on the rest of that crew. They were all adults running a business that had lots of fraudulent activity going on.
2: What the trial has been so far is Sam sitting there, and there's been a parade of his best friends, his colleagues, and they've each been saying... I'm really sorry. I committed fraud. I did it with that guy over there. And like the jury has been falling asleep for some of the details.
1: Does the defense get up and say, so tell us about the fraud you you were an adult, right? You didn't do this when you were 14. Tell us about the fraud you committed when you were running this hedge fund or when you were writing the code. It it's kinda they're kind of laid
2: back, aren't they? The problem is that if the more they hammer in that these witnesses committed fraud that would show that these people know a lot about the fraud and they're all saying that they (laughs) did it with Sam a lot of times they have a lot of details about which fraud they worked on and how they did it they pulled out like google docs that show them doing the fraud some of them even have comments from Sam on the google doc and it's not like you get a free ride just because you plead guilty they're probably all going to jail for a couple of years at least but not 20 or
1: 30 years no
2: Caroline the head of Alameda, Sam's ex-girlfriend, she cried on the stand when she was talking about how bad she felt about participating in this fraud. I don't think they're trying to minimize their own involvement. They're just saying this guy was the boss and like we did it with him.
1: Fair, fair, fair enough. So so let's talk a little bit about in the book. You talk a lot about some of the damage crypto uh, and, and Tether has caused, probably the most uh, harrowing section was on human trafficking, you go to Cambodia to look at at, at some of these
2: slave in, uh, or prisons. How else do you describe these? It's pretty accurate. I mean, it's really crazy. you you know we all get these spam text messages, right? Like they're like, Sam, did you pick up the milk on your way home for the dog? They're not like that great at at English. They don't right. always make sense. These messages I learned, if they will try to make friends with you the, and they'll eventually try to get you to trade crypto with them to try out some new hot crypto app. And they always use Tether. They'll say, hey, I got this great trade idea for you. For you. Just go buy some Tether on Coinbase or some regular app and send it to my special app. Where we'll, we'll make lots of money. And,
1: and you got a spam text from Vicky, who, who sent you pictures clearly not from New York, which is what she told you. And you sent her a hundred dollars worth of tether and you were able to track it yeah which is kind of surprising because we've always been told all this crypto stuff is anonymous turns out not to be very anonymous
2: either it's it's kind of weird that way i mean it's pseudonymous right? right so everybody's wallet has an address that's not associated with their name it's just like a string of random numbers and you can see all the transaction if you if i know like hey this string of random numbers is barry's address I might even be able to go see, like, what exchanges you used or where you sent your money. But if I don't have that first clue that says this is Barry's address, then it might as well be anonymous. So these messages are coming from Cambodia or elsewhere in Southeast Asia. And I learned that the people sending them are often victims themselves. I mean, I spoke with one guy. He's a young guy from Vietnam. He'd been lured to Cambodia thinking that he was going to be doing something else. When he gets there, they're like, no. You're going to scam 24 hours a day. You're not leaving this building unless you pay us thousands of dollars. If you don't scam enough, we're going to beat you. We're going to shock you with these electric batons. And there's actually entire office parks. In the book, I go to one called Chinatown in Western Cambodia. Your photos,
1: they're horrifying.
2: Yeah, it's like dozens of towers, each of them filled with people, thousands of people who are sending these spam messages who can't escape. Obviously this doesn't prove anything, but what really seemed quite telling to me, I get to Chinatown, the most famous of this scam compound site, where this Vietnamese guy I interviewed had escaped from, where people were tortured, people were killed. What do I see right at the entrance to this compound? A closed shop that was a currency exchange, and it says right on the on the big sign out front, USDT. Like, we will trade your tether $4 right here.
1: So if you want to pay ransom to get someone freed, you can do it then and there.
2: So the crypto guys would say, hey, the scams existed before crypto. This isn't really crypto stuff. But I think that crypto made all this a lot easier, made it possible on a bigger scale. I spoke to a, a veteran human trafficking investigator from Taiwan who'd been to Cambodia to ransom young women who'd been tricked into going there from taiwan mm-hmm. and he told me it used to be these human traffickers use banks and like maybe they'd set up give fake names or whatever when they open their bank accounts but those were clues now they use tether what am i supposed to do can't I, I, I can't track. Right. you know he was like this <clears throat> is making my job of investigating human trafficking a lot harder
1: I, i'm genuinely shocked the united nations hasn't stepped into this because this is really horrific
2: you know it, it is actually risen to their attention now and they actually put out a report where they estimate that as many as 200,000 people work in these scam compounds. Oh my God. Yes, that's horrible. The Chinese government has cracked down, and there've been a number of busts. Um, a lot of the worst compounds though, have moved to Myanmar where uh-huh. th- they're essentially, like, outside of the reach of law enforcement. They're in these, like, border regions where even, like, the police don't go. Uh, I went to one in a national park in Cambodia uh, behind, like, a big a big hotel, you know? It, it, it's really unbelievable.
1: The, another statistic from the book that blew my mind, FTX had donated money to one in three members of Congress. How is that possible?
2: Yeah, so Sam... He had this idea that, you know, a lot of people say there's too much money in politics. He said there's not enough money in politics. Just think about how—and his logic kind of made sense. No, it definitely does. The Congress controls these huge pots of money, and if you can influence Congress to spend on your preferred causes, even if it costs you, you know, $100 million to buy influence, that could actually be very small in comparison to how much money you get Congress to spend— So he basically funneled as much money as he could to everybody in Congress. And he took this really cynical and illegal approach to it where (laughs) he was like, I can't just give to everybody because then the Republicans won't like me because they know that I give to a lot of Democrats. The Democrats won't like me if they see that I'm not on their team. So he picked two of his lieutenants and he was like, all right, you're the Democrat and you're the Republican. We're gonna funnel our donations through you.
1: It was mostly to Democrats, but a lot went to Republicans.
2: Yeah, so he was one of the biggest donors to the Biden campaign, gave something like $5 million. And these were not like, you know, cash in bags. These were like donations that like other corporations give. And I I think it was like pretty much two thirds to Democrats, but still a third to Republicans. He used to work at a hedge
1: fund. He knows how to hedge his bets, right?
2: Yeah, and, and he had a lot of things, a lot of priorities. But one of the things he wanted was for the CFTC to regulate crypto. It seemed to me, even when things were going well, he was basically trying to get his preferred crypto legislation passed that would effectively cement FTX as like the go-to crypto exchange that followed all the rules. Right. And box out some of his competitors like Binance that were not run by Americans, didn't have the same political influence, and wouldn't be able to comply. I think that was part of his plan to grow and grow and grow and get out of this hole of borrowed money that he was in. Huh.
1: So you also mention in the book two of my favorite authors, the first being Carl Hiaasen, who uh, I just love everything he ever writes, just the, the best beach reads about the endless corruption in Florida. He, he's an amazingly entertaining writer, but also Michael Lewis, who has a book out, Going Infinite, that came out uh, just around the same time you guys did. What are your thoughts
2: on Lewis's portrayal of SBF? What did he get wrong? I was writing this book. I became aware that pretty early on that Lewis might be working on a crypto book too. And this is my first book. You know, he's like the goat. Like when he's it comes the to poet this...
1: laureate of financial writing. Right. Right? So, I mean,
2: so that was pretty that was pretty scary to me. But then I was at Crypto Bahamas where I saw the Mooch. I saw Michael Lewis interviewing Sam Bankman-Fried on stage. I was looking forward to hearing what he had to say. At this point, I'd learned about the shoes. I'd learned about the Pokemon game. I mean, I came in pretty skeptical of crypto, (laughs) and all I was seeing was like a bunch of scams. And then I see Michael Lewis on stage interviewing Sam, and he's just like fawning all over him. He's saying great things about him. And it goes beyond just being polite. He says, listen, look at the traditional financial world look at the crypto world crypto's better and I'm like Michael Lewis like I I, I I grew up reading your books I learned a lot about finance from you but I really think uh, I, I can't believe you would say that so at that point I actually wondered maybe he's not writing a book maybe he's just here giving speeches or maybe he's working on a documentary or something it turned out he said he was not paid. And he did write a book. He was there to write a book. So um, so
1: he wrote a book, which turned out to be a bestseller. And yeah. he sold the movie rights to Apple TV for a decent amount of money.
2: Yeah. Now, he said something in what I assume was a paid speech. He spoke at Bitcoin 2023 in Miami. Mm-hmm. He was on stage with Arthur Hayes, the head of BitMEX. And Michael Lewis said he got asked about, he was like, you know, all you guys here want to know, do I believe in, in crypto? And he's like, You're, you remind me of the born-again Christians that I met when I was writing The Blind Side. Everyone wanted to know if I I believed. And he's like, listen, it doesn't matter what I think about crypto. My book isn't about what I think about crypto. My book's about Sam Bankman-Fried, and it only matters what he thinks about crypto. And I think this is a mistake. I think that crypto, it's like the biggest financial mania in modern times. And there's no way to write about that accurately, without having an opinion about crypto. By just like saying, oh, I'm neutral, I'm, I think you're missing out on explaining what's happened over the last few years.
1: So if you read the end of Going uh, Infinite, Michael Lewis suggests that the bankruptcy trustee who who said FTX was a bigger mess than Enron, which was a giant mess in and of itself, he implied. That by the time this is all said and done, by the time they liquidate the venture investments and everything else, the missing eight billion dollars is gonna be found. Is that still the case today or has that has that gap narrowed? Has it gotten wider? What's going on with that recovery of the missing funds?
2: It's still a bit mysterious. Now, bankruptcy claims traders are not paying, you know, ninety cents on the dollar right. for FTX claims. They're going for like forty cents. All right, so, so a
1: little above average, but not a whole lot above average. So,
2: I mean, what that suggests is that they think there's going to be a pretty good recovery, but not the whole 80 thing. 80
1: cents, something like
2: that. Yeah. Now, Sam Bankman-Fried's lawyers, this is the defense of Sam Bankman-Fried. Sure. That, like, hey, the the money isn't actually gone, right?
1: It's just misplaced. Like, literally, other places are saying, hey, is this your $300 million right. in Bitcoin we're holding?
2: Now. First of all, it's come out at trial. Everyone, had, all the witnesses said we committed fraud. We took the customers' money. We knew it was wrong. Right. And Sam Bankman-Fried's lawyers have brought this up, and they're like, "Hey, how about we bring up as a defense that like some of these bets worked out, and maybe the money's not gone?" And the judge addressed this, and he said, "The argument that you're making, and that Michael Lewis is semi-making in the book, he's like that would be like I robbed the Federal Reserve." And then I went and bought a million Powerball tickets. Then I won, and I returned the million dollars. It doesn't matter. You still robbed the Federal Reserve. You're still going to jail. So to be
1: fair, Lewis says it wasn't that the bets were going to pay off. It's that all the money wasn't accounted for properly. And if that happens, maybe that money will be missing. Since then, we've learned a lot of that money has been speculated with or gambled with.
2: If Lewis was saying that the money was simply misplaced, like that has been proven to be wrong. The money was definitely not just misplaced and they found it. Like it was bet on a lot of things. And for example, it came out at the trial that customers give money to the exchange. They're counting on the exchange, holding it and giving it back when they want to withdraw. Just like you'd count on E-Trade to have your money when you want to take it out. And what he had done in one instance was give $500 million to his hedge fund to invest in some AI company. And that turned out to be, it looks like it was a pretty good bet.
1: Giant winner.
2: Yeah, but it doesn't mean it was okay. The customers never agreed that he could gamble with their money. They thought that they were gambling with their money on Dogecoin or whatever. Right, this is,
1: uh, you know, part of the description was uh, Alameda had uh, broader uh, parameters for going over the limits, the lending limits, because they were helping to facilitate making a market. But that would have been a little over, not billions of dollars over, tens of billions of dollars over.
2: Yeah. And the, and what the witnesses have testified to is that from actually very early on, Alameda was allowed to treat like the customer money like a piggy bank and use it to gamble on whatever. And actually, one of the things that Michael Lewis has said that has also been shown to not be true at the trial, he said... FTX, if you set aside the fraud, it was a good business, right? Well, the argument is, hey,
1: we're gonna do a bajillion crypto trades and take a tiny little piece of each, and it's a couple of billion dollars a year.
2: So the problem is that FTX, the way the exchange was set up, they claimed they had this great risk management system, this amazing liquidation engine, but it turned out that they didn't. And the exchange over the years actually took big hits at different times and that they covered those up by shunting the losses to Alameda.
1: So so not just hacks, but actually trading losses.
2: Yes. So they the exchange lost almost a billion dollars because wow. of a failure of the liquidation engine on something called MobileCoin. Uh-huh. And if they had disclosed this, first of all, that would have erased all the exchange's profits, right? So like right. no more venture capital, you know, 32 gotcha. billion valuation. So instead they had Alameda take the hit and Alameda could take the hit because they had a limited access to the customer money, right? And so, there were
1: no outside real owners because it was all yeah, mostly Sam Bankman-Fried.
2: So that is not a good business, and the it, it's looking like the truth is much closer to this was a fraud from the start than this was a good business that was that got out of control because Sam Bankman-Fried wasn't paying attention.
1: So, so the summation that I came away from with your book, as opposed to. Lots of the other things I've read on crypto is there's no regulation, there's no disclosure requirements, there's no transparency. When there's a billion dollar loss, nobody says anything. It's all covered up. and And, and on top of all of that, there's no Federal reserve or federal government as a backstop as much as the libertarian crypto bros the FDIC and the government, hey, no matter what happened during the financial crisis or even during the pandemic, my ATM card still worked.
2: I don't talk about the SEC that much in the book. And I actually would blame the SEC for not being a little quicker to crack down on some of this crypto stuff. But I think the book is, if anything, like an argument for financial regulation and saying Uh that some of these age old rules make sense. There's a reason why companies have to disclose stuff. And it's to prevent exactly things like this FTX collapse.
1: Really, really interesting stuff. So
2: you, you guys have sniped at each other
1: a little bit in public. You've traded barbs. What's it like when an author whose books you've loved is, is taking a swing at you?
2: Yeah, he said um, some pretty nasty things to the New York Times about me. Oh, really? Yeah. What, what did he say? He called me, he said that I was uh, skeevier than Sam Bankman Fried. Come on, really? Uh, That's not right. Yeah, so look, I didn't like that, and I I think it's been pretty cool. A lot of the reviews have compared our, our books, and I like really didn't imagine that people would prefer my book to Michael Lewis's, and I've been like amazed to see that it's gotten such good reviews.
1: This is the book to read on crypto, is what uh, Wired said. Read the other SBF book.
2: What I realized when I finished the book is that before all this, I was just like, you know what? This was an amazing adventure. I've always wanted to write a book like this. I'm really proud of how it came out. I'm sure Michael Lewis's book is going to be a hit, but like, whatever. I don't care about his book. I think people should read this and it's going to be and it's a lot of fun. I actually just don't know where I'm going to get another story like this. Like this is like the story I've been waiting for my whole life.
1: Well, you're you're a relatively young guy. I'm sure there's a, an, another book that will uh come along. This is really a a deeply researched work of investigative journalism. Number go up. And if you were skeptical or or even just crypto curious beforehand, it's hard to read this and not come away with the thought that this is a massive bubble that will end badly for everybody involved.
2: You know what? I've been particularly pleased. I've gotten some comments from crypto people, and they've said that they actually really like the book. And one guy said, "Please stay in crypto. We need you to make fun of us."
1: <laughs> so, so when I I put a, something out on Twitter yesterday saying, "Hey, I got Zeke Fox tomorrow. What should I ask him?" There were a handful of kind of goofy questions. Ask him if he's shorted. Bitcoin was one of them. Someone said, hey, you know, uh, would you and Michael Lewis ever... Uh, this Someone slipped into a DM and said, hey, would you and Michael Lewis ever sit down on a stage together and have a debate about uh, Sam Bankman-Fried, FTX, and crypto?
2: I would love to do it. If Michael Lewis, if you're listening, let's do it. You know, we can... Uh, uh, you're a big draw. We can sell tickets. We can give money to one of the charities that SBF stiffed.
1: <laughs> and, and to be fair, I really enjoyed both books, but they're two very different types of books. The one other question I wanted to ask you before we get to our favorite questions, you were part of the team that wrote this interesting Business Week uh, series on how local New York State courts had been weaponized by debt collectors, signed here to lose everything. You won a Loeb Award for that. Tell us a little bit about that bit of investigative journalism.
2: One of like the best threads that I pulled in my whole career has been this world of brokers who sell small business loans. And it's called merchant cash advance. Right. And basically the guys who were like worked for Jordan Belfort like back in the 90s that, that whole business of cold calling people and selling stocks has dried up. And if you're still... But if you if you still want to cold call people and earn commission, a lot of those guys now sell merchant cash advance to small businesses. It's like calling up a bodega and being like, hey, do you need 10 grand? I'll get it to you tomorrow. But if you if you sign up, you're going to have to pay back like 15 in two months or something like that. Crazy rates, way higher than loan sharks S- ever charge. Sounds
1: usurious and should be illegal.
2: Yeah, but they've got all these loopholes. And the series was about... This one amazing loophole that they came up with. These guys are super creative, and the, I, is I this, like. A this good is scam. the confession of judgment because yeah. so,
1: that's been around for a long time, but it wasn't really used.
2: Yeah. So these guys, they would if if you were the bodega, you would have to before you got the loan, you'd have to sign a paper that said, "I have defaulted on this loan, and if judge, when you see this document, please rule against me and seize my assets." So the lender would be holding that document, and if they ever if dated ever,
1: or undated, because if you're getting the loan on October first, and the confession of judgment is dated October first, seems a little sketchy.
2: They had all that covered. Right. The wording was not exactly how I just said it. It was it all. It would all get stamped. Fi- it would be. It w- the the point of the series is this was legal. You you could do this. You could take it to court. If so, what would happen is the bodega misses a payment. That's and it done. Yeah, the lender goes to court with this document, no warning, they get it stamped because you already signed it, and then amazingly, the lender could take this document to a New York City marshal, who's like a- Sheriff. Sheriff, and that sheriff would then fax something to the bank where the bodega has a bank account and get the whole 15,000 right there. So instead of waiting two months to get your your usurious return, you get it in like a week or two if you if the bodega missed a payment or even if you just claim they did because there's no chance for them to contest it. Wow. So me and my colleague, Zach Miter did a series about this. We wrote about uh, a bunch of crazy characters who were exploiting this loophole and then um, New York State passed a law closing this loophole. After that, they, they moved to Connecticut and started doing it there. We exposed that loophole, Connecticut passed a law closing the loophole. I'm sure they found a new state. So so
1: how did you – talk about a thread to pull.
2: How, how did you find this? I was writing about these crooked brokers, and I, I was doing – I did a kind of fun story about how – it was around the time The Wolf of Wall Street came out, mm-hmm. and it was the, the point of the story was sort of like these guys are down on their luck and, like, the cold-calling business is no good anymore. Right. Um, and a lot of these guys – so I spent a long time taking them out for, you know, stakes at uh, – at Harry's or whatever, Uh downtown. And they would, a lot of them told me they'd gotten into this cash advance business. finally I was like, what is this cash advance business that you're all doing now? This might be kind of interesting. And one of the first guys I met in it, this is back in like 2014, I went to this guy's office. So the financial district, like it's like the, it's got the lowest office rents in New York. These offices are like dumps. I go to this guy's- But it's a
1: Wall Street address.
2: uh, Right, so I, I go to this guy's office who runs this thing called Pearl capital? And I meet this guy named Abe runs Pearl capital and he is one of these cash advance outfits that charge like five hundred percent interest and it's like this dumpy office with like cases of red bulls stacked up They're not wasting money on marble and and walnut no 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 and i I meet one of his his minions who's like eighteen years old he had this he has his minion give me a ride home. The guy's driving like a v12 mercedes he's this uh like high school dropout who can uh with this thick brooklyn accent and as he drives me home in his hundred thousand dollar car he's calling these these bodega owners and being like you're late on your payment (laughs) and i'm just like what is with these guys and so abe told me you see my empire here with like the stained carpets. I'm going to sell this company to like a hedge fund. We're making so much money. I'm going to make $100 million. I'm going to be rich.
1: Just yeah. just don't tell any of that to an investigative reporter <laughs> from Businessweek, and you might have something left to sell.
2: Well, so he did tell me that. And then I was like, I, wa- I was newer at this, so I wasn't quite sure how to do the story. But then one day, I obtained a letter. And it said, Dear Abe, we would like to buy... Your company for a hundred million dollars. Get out. Sincerely Goldman Sachs. Get out. Yes. And, and did he sell? He did sell. He didn't get quite a hundred million. He sold to a different company. And he had actually he moved he did the Puerto Rico tax thing. Right. Which you talk about Rico. in the book,
1: by the way. What what is it about Puerto Rico, Miami, Bahamas, all these fraudsters, they like warm weather? What what what's that about? You can actually,
2: you can get out of all your taxes by moving your company and yourself to Puerto Rico.
1: 4% Puerto Rican tax rate. That's all you owe.
2: Yeah. No federal tax. No capital no state gains. tax. Yeah. But you have to live in Puerto Rico for more than half the year. So if you don't want to pay
1: New York state tax, New York doesn't care where you live as long as you're not in New York for more than half the year. Puerto Rico is saying, no, you have to be here. Uh, rainy season, hot sea, whatever. Uh, yeah. Half a year and a day.
2: And so it takes like a certain kind of person who's so concerned about maximizing their money that they're willing to do that. Why would you want to live someplace if you could afford not to? Well, this this Abe guy, he had a funny... Uh, he was a great character. There At one point, um, James Franco was talking to him about playing him in the movie. That didn't happen. Oh, really? <laughs> um, but he said... he. So he grew up poor in Brooklyn. He was from this big family... And he said that, uh, you know, like riding the subway was a treat because the parents weren't going to pay like 20 bucks to to swipe everybody in. Right. And he was like, when I was younger, when I was poor, if you asked me, I would have said, what's the difference between $10 million and $100 million? And he's like, now that I got it, I know there's a difference. And like, he really wanted to get to that, that huh. like next level.
1: That That's really, that's really interesting. All right. So I only have a, you for a few more minutes. Let me... Uh, Jump to my favorite questions. Uh, we'll we'll kind of make this a speed round, starting with, what have you been streaming? Tell us some of your uh, favorite Netflix, Amazon Prime, or or even podcasts you listen to.
2: So my recommendation is a series of Korean action movies. I love action movies. Oh really? Um, it's called the one that I like the best. It's called the Roundup. That's entry number two in the crime city series Uh and it stars this guy don lee and he plays he's like the prototypical cop from like an 80s 90s action movie where like he, he he doesn't follow the rules but he always gets his guy right you know he's always like beating up the suspect instead of uh you know asking him the questions like the other cops do and it's got it's funny it's got great action scenes um i love it Yes, the Subtitled
1: or, do, or you watch it dubbed?
2: You gotta get subtitles and I'm waiting. There's the the Roundup three is out. It came out in theaters, but you can't stream it yet. So I'm okay. waiting for for number three.
1: All right, so let's talk about your early mentors who helped shape your career.
2: My first job as a reporter was at a paper called the Brooklyn paper. It was like uh-huh. a free weekly you got at the supermarket. I was an unpaid intern. My boss was Gersh Kuntzman. Uh-huh. and he was like a tabloid guy. He'd worked at The Post. He was an amazing mentor because he was, he was a very tough editor, and he insisted that each of the stories be interesting. Like, we couldn't – we weren't – there was no, like, meandering. The story had to have a point. Right before – when you pitch the story, you had to think of, like, what the headline would be and why anybody would care about this. Uh-huh. And he'd even – if you came back, uh, I was working for him when Obama won, Uh And he was like, all right, go find some people who are happy about this, interview them, come back with some quotes. And I think it was rainy. So I spent like a couple hours out in the rain, stopping people on their way home from work and being like, what do you think about this? You know, not like the most fun assignment. I came back with what I thought were some pretty good quotes. And he was like, those quotes are boring. Get back out there. (laughs) And like, I didn't like it at the time, especially because I was not getting paid. But I think that that's a... uh, it's true you got to put in the time in this crypto world I spent day after day talking to these guys you looking were, for you the must most have been interesting in 20 quotes. countries
1: in the book I mean you traveled all around the world
2: I really thought all right it's my first book I don't know I don't want to disappoint anybody I want the reader to feel like I did my best I went to look at everything I could think of and like any questions you had I really did my best to go to Cambodia to answer them or to El Salvador to see if like this Bitcoin experiment was real. So maybe some part of that came from Gersh telling me quotes are boring. Get back out there to the subway station and ask people about the election.
1: So let's talk about some other books. Uh, what are
2: you reading and, and what are some of your favorites? My picks are, there's are pretty mainstream because the kind of book that I wrote is the kind of book that I love. Like when I was a, Teenager, I always I loved these crazy nonfiction adventures. Uh-huh. So that was like Into Thin Air, that, by John Krakauer, or The Perfect Storm, or I loved um, Bringing Down the House by Ben Mesrich the uh-huh. about the MIT blackjack kids. And I still love that kind of book, like David Gran, The Lost City of Z, or uh, Patrick Radden Keefe. I just I love these like true stories that that are uh, too crazy to believe. Did, have
1: you ever read Endurance, the the Shackelford story? No. Uh, phew, that, put that at the top of your list. The book has to be true because if it was fiction, people would throw it away <laughs> and say this is just too not believable. If you like Into Thin Air, oh, this is the book that started that genre.
2: It's insane. Oh, nice. I'll check it so, out. So that's a good one. I have a, a, a more off the run us. one that you might you might want to check out. is called The Tiger by John Valiant. And it's about, like, a killer tiger in in Siberia. Uh And the guys who, like, they're guys who are, like, tiger detectives who have to go find the killer tiger. All true. Right. One of the best uh, nonfiction books of this genre. Right now, I'm reading a lot of uh, Diary of a Wimpy Kid to my children. I have twins who are six. Right. And my son loves this series, diary of the wimpy kid actually very boring i don't like it <laughs> <laughs> um, i actually like children's books a lot of the time but these these wimpy kid books it's the number one children's book they're super they're popular terrible. they're just like it's a di it's a kid's diary you know it's bo- it's a little Bored. repetitive right there's like 20 of them we're almost to the end but then I, they eli said we're going to start back at the beginning
1: <laughs> <laughs> no 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 good um so let's get to our last uh, two questions what sort of advice would you give to a recent college grad who is interested in a career in journalism, investigative reporting, finance, or crypto? What, what would you suggest
2: to them? If you get into financial journalism, one thing I didn't really understand is that finance guys, a lot of them, are on, they're on the phone all day. They're right. just gossiping with their buddies. And right. you can like get in the mix. And if you just act like you belong... You can call these guys up and be like, hey, uh, did you hear about Jill at Goldman Sachs? Like, I heard she took a big loss last week. And they'll talk about it with you. Happy to dish. You know, they're talking with their friends about the same stuff. If you don't act super official and you just feel like you're part of the mix, people will talk to you about about what's going on at work. Now
1: you you let them in on the secret method.
2: Yeah, go for it. (laughs) That's amazing. And finally, what
1: do you know about the world of, again, investigative journalism, reporting, or finance today, you wish you knew. I don't know, when did you begin your career? Like 15, 20 years ago?
2: That's about right. Yeah. There is one thing about the world of crypto that I wish I knew when I started this book, which uh-huh. was that number goes up. Number go I actually wish I knew that Alameda w- researched Sam Bankman Fried's hedge fund was secretly borrowing all the customer money from FTX. Because I'm still kicking myself that I didn't catch this guy. That could have been like my claim to fame.
1: Really interesting stuff. Thanks, Zeke, for being so generous with your time. We have been speaking with Zeke Fox, author of Number Go Up, Inside Crypto's Wild Ride, and Staggering Fall. If you enjoy this conversation, check out any of the previous 500 or so discussions we've had over the past nine years. You can find those at iTunes, Spotify, YouTube, wherever you find your favorite podcast. Sign up for my daily reading list at Ritholtz.com. Follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. Follow all of the Bloomberg family of podcasts on Twitter at podcast. I would be remiss if I did not thank the crack team who puts these conversations together each week. Rich Subnani is my audio engineer. Atika Valbron is my project manager. Anna Luke is my producer. Sean Russo is my researcher. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio.
3: Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor